0: now spreading freedom across the nation this is the buck sexton show
1: all right, Team Buck, welcome to our three today in the Freedom Hut. We're joined by Joel Pollack. He is Breitbart News senior editor at large. He's got a new book out that he co-authored with Larry Schweiker called How Trump Won the Inside Story of a Revolution. Joel, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Great to be with you.
1: All right. Tell us about the book. You were covering it. You were behind the scenes. You saw it. The media was even worse to Trump than we thought. I don't even know how that's possible.
2: Right. Well, actually, as, as I speak to you here today, I'm in the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. You can probably hear the commotion behind me. And we have uh, the inauguration happening here in D.C. tomorrow. And lots of, lots of pandemonium here as the Trump fans get ready to celebrate. And uh, sort of the spirit of the campaign is carried over into the celebration as people face off against protesters and fights for roadblocks to get to the man they want to see elected and inaugurated now as 45th president of the United States.
1: Uh, before we get into the campaign and the behind the scenes that you saw that you you uh, detail in your book, I just want to ask you, are, are you seeing protesters lying in streets or lining up to do so? Any, any other sort of uh, leftist uh, shenanigans that we were told might happen? Do you, is it going to happen? Are you seeing any of that stuff?
2: <laughs> well, nothing violent, you know, nothing n- nothing that we feared would happen yet, but I have seen my first protesters. Uh, I was on the Metro train underground just now with uh, a couple of women who were from out of town. They were protesting, and one of them was wearing a fur coat, and, and I thought my- maybe it was fake fur. You know, I didn't want to judge her too harshly because, of course, uh, you know, they don't believe in fur or using animals. Right, or, you weren't going to throw a red paint at
1: her and say animals have feels too. Right. I get it.
2: Right. So I asked her, is that real? And she said, kind of sheepishly, yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of looked at her funny and she said, well, I'm from Chicago. And you know, I grew up in Chicago, too. Um, you know, being on the left apparently is enough to uh, absolve you of whatever sins you might be committing. Um, I've got to try that with uh, I grew up in funny. New
1: York. Next time somebody gets mad at me for voting for Trump, <laughs> I'll be like, but I
2: grew up in New York. Anyway, go ahead, Joel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What does that mean? But uh, anyway so um, that's, that, that's just another little vignette from the campaign trail. And, and there's so many stories of, of, of hypocrisy to the left. I mean, that's really a, kind of a mild version. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's exciting. I'm speaking to you here from the lobby now of the hotel. Um, all kinds of people going back and forth. I saw Kellyanne Conway just here a moment ago. Um, there are people waiting, lining up to get their inauguration tickets. And, and just kind of an air of excitement. And you know, all these people boycotting the election or, sorry, the inauguration. Uh, these these 65 or so Democrats and the Hollywood people who stayed away. I mean, I think it's great because it means it's more for the rest of us to enjoy. Uh, I'll be covering it for Breitbart, but also just kind of taking in the scene around D.C. And if you know Washington, D.C., it's a difficult city to get around. But Pennsylvania Avenue is totally blocked off right now and, and really quite a nice stroll. Um, really, really peaceful in preparation for the parade. And so, um, you know, it, it's really... I think a fresh start for democracy tomorrow. Uh, This was an election nobody could have predicted. My my co-author on how Trump won, Larry Schweikart, was one of the few who did predict it. So uh, kudos to him. Um, If you read the book, you'll find that when you come to my parts of the book, I'm very skeptical about Trump's chances. Never wrote him off and always thought that he was the one Republican who might be Hillary Clinton. But I still gave him a slim chance to do so. Whereas Larry was looking at different data. Larry, of course, brings his historical perspective to the book, and so... He has a better sense, perhaps, of what's possible. And, you know, when you talk about American history, this is a guy who's written about presidents. This is the guy who wrote The Patriot's History of the United States. So he probably had Andrew Jackson in mind, or at least in the back of his mind when he looked at this election, because that's what this was. This was the biggest populist upset since 1828. And Rudy Giuliani came out on election night to the press. Uh, The perspective I give you in the book, in my parts of the book, is that of a reporter on the trail, on the plane, following Trump around, going from rally to rally, talking to his supporters, asking him why they were there, and talking to protesters, people who didn't like him, and asking all of that. And, and it was just a fantastic journalistic experience to be right there with a the front seat at the greatest political event, certainly of my lifetime, the greatest upset, perhaps, in American history. Uh, real exciting moment, and I think some more exciting moments are to come. Some people had a little too much excitement, but I think that we need to uh, just take a moment and observe how remarkable it is that American democracy continues to have this ability to renew itself. And I I hope people will enjoy the book and, and and take that sense from my story of the election and Larry's story, um, which is, which is the lesson I carry with me today.
1: Joel, can you give us uh, maybe one or two instances or details uh, anything you you have in the book? I see here that uh, in the description and, and it's again, how Trump won the inside story of a revolution uh, that you expose the, quote, shocking behind the scenes behavior of the story manipulating press while on the frenetic closing weeks of Trump's campaign trail, end quote. Uh, I was at CNN, so I have my own stories that I could share with you. And I was there as a commentator, not as a reporter. uh, But I saw all kinds of stuff going on on camera and off. What are some of the things you talk about in the book that you saw on the campaign trail?
2: Well, one of the episodes I describe is one where we were at a speech in Toledo, Ohio, and he was talking about the problems of black communities in the inner city that he wanted to help solve, and he used the word ghetto to describe those neighborhoods. Now that's a pretty common usage. It used to be even more common. Um, less so now, but you can find very recent examples of people, of black intellectuals like Thomas Sowell, using that language. And the media went bananas over it. And I wrote about their reaction. They, they thought it was some kind of a dog whistle, either to you know the racists out there or whatever. Anti-Semites were lurking in the corners of their imaginations and and they made a huge deal out of it and I wrote about that and and one of the leading journalists on the press corps uh, got very upset with me and they almost he said threw me off the plane he says we had a debate about whether to do that I, you know and I can't go into the details of our discussion because that too was off the record but you know it just shocked me that there was this kind of shared idea in the press about what Trump was and what he wasn't and it to me, to my mind, it was completely wrong. Um, so so they thought the that ghetto
1: was a, a racist, a racist dog whistle about African-Americans. Did they just not know the origins of the term or, or did they not care?
2: No, they knew that. I, I don't know. It just They all thought it was something that had to be reacted to. That's something that was newsworthy and that, you know, that, that demonstrated some vulnerability on the part of the candidate. And I just I heard the same speech they did. And I thought this is this is just strange. Um, and to watch um, Certainly on Twitter, again, I can't, I can't talk about what people said on the bus and the van. I, I really do want to stay on the right side of that off-the-record rule, although I think they've really taken it to an absurd length. If you read other campaign memoirs by journalists, if you look at David Halberstam writing about Robert Kennedy in the 1960s, you'll find that plenty of tales from the trail make it into the book. But, you know, there was enough on Twitter from journalists watching on television to, to let you know this was kind of a hive mind reaction. This was groupthink at, at the highest level. And, and it was just stunning to see it in, in, in person unfolding like that. I got a few stories like that as well, where the stories reported in the press bore almost no resemblance to what happened in, inside a Trump rally.
3: Did you, uh, were you?
2: Where
1: were you the night that he won, by the way?
2: I was at the victory party, and it was, it was pretty amazing because it started out like a funeral. I mean, we got there at 730, and people were thinking he was going to lose. And then the Florida panhandle came in, and things started to look very different. And so it was transformed it was almost like the entire campaign in microcosm from from no chance of winning to a ninety nine percent chance of winning in a very short period of time and in a very dramatic fashion. So that it was it was a night to remember, I can tell you that much.
1: Was there any was there a mo what was your moment where you said uh you know, oh my, this is actually going to happen. Well, It was the panhandle results. I mean, for me, it was that plus the New York no. Times going from he has like a 40% chance of winning to a 90% chance of winning. That happened in about an hour.
2: Yeah, he's, uh, I can remember each of those points. But for me, I knew that it wasn't going to be over until he won one of those blue states. Because I, in my mind, I had little electoral map that I, that I was following along. And I knew that he was probably going to lose Nevada, that New Hampshire was going to be a very close thing and that the only way to guarantee a win would be to win one of those blue states. And I also knew that that had been his strategy, and we had spent a lot of time in those blue states. You know, normally campaigns would work swing states and try to persuade the moderate voters in swing states to come over. Trump took a very different approach. He spent time in the swing states, but he also went behind enemy lines, so to speak, and went to the blue states and spoke directly to Democrat voters about why they should vote for him. And that was a strategy. They knew that they had such a huge disadvantage in the Electoral College because of New York, California, Illinois, going to the Democrats that they had to get behind that blue wall and i knew they had to lose at least one state uh, or had to steal at least one state from, from the democrats um and when they got wisconsin which was the one we least expected to come uh, larry tells in the book about how he expected them to win michigan and pennsylvania but wisconsin was the one state he didn't predict and the margin there was was staggering also and for him to win wisconsin that way that's when i knew it was over but that was pretty late in the game i mean People were already celebrating and I was just keeping, you know, poker face because I I knew that those New York Times numbers would swing back the other way as Hillary Clinton picked up a couple extra states.
1: It's one of my one of my regrets, because I think I could have just gone over. I I found out later that people didn't need an engraved invitation necessarily was that I wasn't far away in New York City from the Clinton headquarters uh where they were already popping the champagne literally according to some accounts right uh, about how hillary was going to win i just would have wanted to be there not to marinate in their agony or anything but just to have been for historical purposes to have seen that because i know they all thought that they were they were expecting to have an awesome party and that's it's like it's like a party where you know as soon as the kegs are rolled out uh the cops show up the lights go on and uh, people are getting arrested (laughs) you know that's that's not the party you want to be at Um, but, uh, Joel, are you, are you going to be enjoying some three doors down and Toby Keith, or are you just going to be working while you're down there?
2: Uh, hard at work. And then, you know, because inauguration's on a Friday and I observe the Jewish Sabbath, I'm going to be at a special Sabbath dinner on Friday night in DC. There's a couple of those going on instead of the inaugural balls. And I think it'll be a unique opportunity to observe the inauguration in, in a special way. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the weekend and, and then heading back to California to be with family and, uh, and, and get this coverage, a new administration
1: absolutely well uh, joel pollack is breitbart news senior editor at large he is the author along with larry schweigert of how trump won the inside story of a revolution joel we appreciate you joining us have a a good and safe inauguration
2: thank you very very much
1: and uh team we'll be right back
2: this is the buck sexton show
0: the blaze radio network The Buck Sexton Show.
1: We got uh, Jim in Minnesota on the line. What's up, Jim? Hey, Buck. How you doing? Good, good. What's going on? Uh,
0: I was wondering as far as, uh, with Manning, as far as, uh, uh, you know, so that drives me crazy because, as you know, I'm a retired Navy vet and I had a, a secret clearance or top secret clearance, you know, but basically just basically on airplanes, you know, I worked on airplanes and sometimes we had to look at the, uh, schematics and the, you know, different, uh, data about them. And of course some of that was classified. So, uh, but I was just wondering as far as, uh, do you think this is, uh, going to change anything as far as, uh, is it going to be pushed even further into the transgender, uh, as far as, uh, issues or do you think, uh, you know, this will be kind of a uh, people will just say that, you know, this is just outrageous. And uh, and, you know, go and the transgender issue will be pushed back.
1: No, I, I think that we're entering a period now where where the, the corporate culture and certainly academia already reflects this. But we're getting to the point where to call somebody who has been a, a man for 25 years of life who decides or, you know, 35 years oh, yeah. of life or whatever that he believes he's a woman and remember it is a belief it is not based in any genetic or or i shouldn't say genetic it is not um based in any anatomical reality right Uh, because genetics and psychology can be tied into each other of course but this is now going to be a thing where if you say that a person is a he when he says she's a she It's not going to be, well, I have a different point of view on that. Mine is based in objective reality. It's going to be, you're a bigot. You're violating uh, employment non discrimination law and you're in a lot of trouble. You know, I I never advocate nor would I ever condone and and I would actively condemn anybody being mean to somebody or being unkind to somebody based upon any number of, of conditions. And, you know, people who are transgender or are brothers and sisters just like everybody else. I do see this, though, turning into a you better bend the knee on this or else. And that's that's where this is going. I mean, the the fact that the president look, I was reading conservative sites that were saying she for Chelsea Manning. Oh, my God. What what is this? She? I know. And people will say, Buck, why do you care? Why can't you just use the pronoun that he wants you to? And it's because I I don't I don't live in a in a reality Where, or rather, yeah, I don't live, live in a world where I can just say reality is something other than what it is. Yeah, right. You know, I have a and, lot of uh, objections to, to... – go ahead, Jim.
0: And also, I was wondering, too, as far as uh, uh, looking at this whole case, as far as what makes me sick about it the most as far as his parents, they're basically encouraging this in their children. I mean, they got to be sick to do stuff like that.
1: Yeah it's it's very strange. I saw an article recently about a uh, a mother who wants to become a man and a son who wants to become a daughter I think it was. Uh, and, and you know the, oh, so dear. it was it was a mother and son and the son wants to be a woman and the mother wants to be a man now. And this was being this oh. is being celebrated on the left. I don't I mean to to celebrate this is also very strange to me. I, look, there there are um, and and they are they are welcome and and they are valued listeners. But I know there are transgender individuals who listen to this show and I'd be very open to and very curious to hear from one of them on some of these issues because the aggressive mm-hmm. left doesn't actually represent many of the groups that they purport to represent right. accurately. Meaning that, you know, and you saw this, by the way, with, with even some very prominent members of the, of the gay and, and lesbian community when there was that firing of the Mozilla CEO because he supported, whatever it was, Prop 8 in California back in 2008. And they said, no, no, we, we, we shouldn't be engaged in retroactive witch hunts against people, especially when Barack Obama ran in 2008 on traditional marriage and and so now you're going to single people out and destroy them i mean that's just uh it's i mean that's just wrong man i don't know what else, how else to put it um i think with the, with the yeah. transgender issue you're going to see more and more of an effort to force people to speak about things in a certain way and there will be it won't be that you're just called a bigot or or ignorant there will be actual consequences for you you will be fired you will be uh they, they will take sanctions against you and the law will be on their side this is all happening now. Yeah. They've become a protected class. Look, I, be nice to everybody. You can you, Your name can be whatever okay. you want. You can grow your hair however you want. You can dress okay. however you want. But to tell me that I have yeah. to call someone who is an anatomically male a female just because they want me to, okay. you know, what if somebody walks around and they want me to call them a platypus? Do I have to do that? Yeah. I mean, that would be people say, oh, that'll never happen. Why will that never happen? Some people yeah. might think that's funny. Maybe they identify as something other than human. Maybe they think that they're actually an alien that's landed on Earth. I actually know of somebody who told somebody I know that they believed that about themselves. So I'm not even completely pulling that out of thin air. I know somebody who thought that he was part of an alien race. This is true. Uh, so hear, or, uh, I know of somebody. Now? So what's up?
0: Did you hear now that the scouts are now, uh, you know, of course, they accept gay, uh, you know, gay scouts but now it's being pushed they're p- pushing to get transgender scouts in there now
1: i just you know i, I don't even yeah, know i know, I know what this you mean. idea that we're going to get kids who are still figuring all this stuff right. out right uh, th- that we're going to start encouraging them to make you know what right. if you do you really want to be a a twenty-five year old who lived at, male who lived as a female for like ages eight to eleven or eleven to fourteen or something. <laughs> that, that's, kind of, that's not good. This is not good what I they're know, doing I to know. people. Yeah. I know. Anyway, oh, Jim, yeah, I hear you, a, man. Uh, good, good to talk to you, shields high. Um I look, I saw even uh, on not even just on the left wing sites. They're all calling Chelsea Manning she. I need a doctor to call in to tell me how we deal with the fa- somebody who takes who who is an MD who deals with gender reassignment surgery, and explains to me what we make of the fact that you cannot take a person who is a male and make them into a fema. They can't they can't do that. So I mean they can't even cure the common cold. I know that's kind of a non sequitur, but they definitely can't make a man into a woman. Can't do it. So, why would we start to say that a person who is male is now female? Unless I'm missing something. Maybe, maybe they've gotten so good at the surgery now that, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case. I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll have to get a guest on. I know the guy from Johns Hopkins who said it wasn't the case knew more about it than anybody, and then he was chased out of the public square.
0: The Bug Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. the buck sexton show
1: all right team you will recall the nonstop media coverage of the flight mh370 that went missing the malaysia airlines flight uh, that still to this day we don't have answers the search has been called off and i wanted to bring on somebody to tell us what what the latest is on what they were able to find figure out and what we think really happened here because this is a plane that just seemed to disappear out of thin air uh sal Lagoni is an aviation attorney and an analyst on fox news who's been covering mh370 from day one he's also a pilot you can learn more about what he does at lagonialaw.com. uh sal thank you for calling in my pleasure all right mh370 uh, what ha- what what has changed now they're calling off the search what have they found and what did they not find
3: Well, after three years of covering this story, I feel like I own the airplane, for for crying out loud, and I've never flown it. Um, But we've found so little. Um, And I think we are at the point where we were probably my third day of covering this with Bill Hemmer at Fox News. uh, He asked me, are we ever going to find this thing, and how long is it going to take? And I said, well, we'll find it when we start looking in the right place. And we still haven't started looking in the right place for it. And, of course, now they're, they're terminating the search because they're running out of money and they've, they've spent a ton of money looking in the wrong places.
1: Is there a place that you think they should have? But where have they been searching? I mean, I, have, I haven't talked about this on the show really since the, probably the month that the plane disappeared. So it's been quite a while. They're calling off the search now. Where have they been primarily looking?
3: Well, they're primarily looking in the South Indian Ocean. That's not where they started the search. They immediately started the search where they knew it wasn't, which was immediately after takeoff, just coming up over the, uh, the Thailand Sea. Uh, they, the plane disappears from radar, so they start looking there. Of course, that's not where the plane was. Um, then they get these, these parameters that they started to use to try to analyze where the plane may have gone down, And they came up with a very convoluted formula that put them in the South China Sea, about 1,000 miles west of Australia. Well, the plane could not have been there or it could have been in a million other places, but that was like shooting a dart at a wall and saying maybe it's in this this particular area. Um, They assumed a lot of information. They assumed the airplane never lost altitude prior to to running out of fuel and crashing. Uh, It was at flight level 350, which is 35,000 feet. And they assumed it stayed there. For whatever reason. Um had that plane descended to five thousand feet, obviously we're looking two or three thousand miles different footprint than, than we would have been otherwise.
1: They've spent, I see here Bloomberg reporting on this, $135 million to try to find this plane. They have not been able to find the I mean they've not been able to find it. I think everybody listening who's not familiar with aviation or, or any of the way that these things function, I'm one of them. I don't know much about this stuff at all. Uh, thinks, what, isn't there, you know, there's GPS on your car, there's the black box on this. I mean, how can they not find, you know, what, what would be the usual ways they'd find a plane and why have they not been able to use those?
3: Yeah, well, let's, let's just start with the fact that not all, all airlines and not all countries are, are created equal. Um, had this been an American-based airline, this would not have been a problem as it was, at least not to this extent. Um, American-based airlines have all subscribed to this device called ECARs. And ACARS stands for Aircraft Communication and Reporting System. And it basically is a satellite-based system that takes a signal from the aircraft and plots it and and actually tells you everything about what's going on in the aircraft. I had a a captain of a a 777 tell me once, if I flip a switch on a circuit breaker, it knows, and the ground knows. Um, Unfortunately, Malaysia didn't want to spend that kind of money on their equipment, so they didn't have this full system. They had a version of ACARS. But that version only interrogated the aircraft, the electronics on the aircraft, every 30 minutes. And that's what's so surprising about this crash, because whenever we investigate an aircraft crash, we look through a timeline first. That's most important. And what was so important about this one was things happened in almost a sequence, as if somebody was doing it in a cockpit. A sequence of failures of various communications devices with the ground. So... Whether they had A-cars or not, it's, it's, it's doubtful that it would have helped a whole bunch if someone on board was actually turning these things off.
1: There were 239 people on board this flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, Sal. What do the governments involved in this search, and what does Malaysia Airlines tell those 239 families happened here? What is the official storyline?
3: Well, they they gave him some comfort money to to try to make it better, three thousand um, dollars, if you can believe that. Um, and of course, under the under they the gave uh, they person? gave him
1: three thousand dollars a person. That's three thousand
3: dollars wow. American dollars in, in comfort money. Oh my God, money. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, and under the under the laws, uh, the the international aviation laws, they can uh, be entitled to some compensation, y- usually up into the range of 100 uh, dollars. Again, very very small payment for what they've lost, unfortunately. Um, but what what not only what they lost, but what does the aviation community lose? We lose the fact that we we try to make aviation so safe, and it is, by the way, it is humongously humongous, safe. Um, but we spend Millions and millions of dollars in this country. Anytime a plane goes down, figuring out every little minutia of why it went down to keep it safe. And so when something like this happens that we can't explain, it just makes aviation, it it sets aviation back a bit. And especially the aviation from that country, Malaysia Airlines now out of business and and reformed under a new business. But still, uh, that airline certainly uh, took a, a huge loss out of prestige from this but the entire aviation community takes a loss because people look at that airplane crash and say, it could happen to me.
1: Now, Sal, I know you don't know because nobody knows. So I'm not trying to, to force you to give us an answer that's impossible here. But it, what is the most plausible theory of what happened to flight MH370 in your mind? I mean, if you had to come up with one series of events that happened, and I know you're not saying it did, but if you had to come up with one, what's the most likely in your estimation?
3: Well, we've been, we've been looking at this for a long time, and it, you know the NTSB works. They, they look for the probable cause. They never are 100% sure. But when you look at the probable cause of this, of this aircraft crash, you're thinking either something in the cargo bay, somebody on the crew, one of the passengers got into the cockpit, or a, a, a mechanical problem like hypoxia or a power interruption. Over the, over the three years now that I've been covering this thing, um, the power interruption certainly did not happen because we had power all the way through this flight for seven and a half hours. Hypoxia would not have caused the aircraft to turn. So so that I ruled out early on because the aircraft was on autopilot. It would have continued on autopilot all the way to Beijing. Wouldn't have landed itself, but it could have gotten there. Um, so you had two passengers on board the aircraft with stolen passports. That has never been explained. And you had a crew that the captain, at least, the 53-year-old captain, actually had a flight simulator in his house and while the malaysian government told us nothing was suspicious on that flight simulator the fbi got a hold of the hard drive and found different they found the actual path of the aircraft somewhat into the south indian ocean uh, months and months later
1: so foul play is the most likely scenario i believe
3: it this is a nefarious act i believed it Uh, from early on in this in this investigation. And as more and more information comes in, it seems more and
1: more likely. So now let's let me just play this out a little bit as 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 somebody who is an amateur on the outside doesn't understand avionics. So uh, if it was that pilot, how could he have accomplished all this and get us to this point where we still can't find the plane he would have would he have known about some of the deficiencies in the tracking system would he have been able to knock everybody out on the plane with uh, by turning off uh, the the oxygen I mean how could he have gone about this
3: well he could have gone about it very very systematically and, and, and the evidence supports that uh, if you look at the aircraft that left from Kuala Lumpur about 30 minutes later it he gives a normal handoff to Ho Chi Minh radar which is the next radar that would have picked him up in that small gap, there's about an eight-minute gap where no radio signal is going to be heard because they're out of range of both of the, of the two radar units. In that little gap, if you want to believe in coincidences, that's where everything starts to fail. The cars gets turned off. Two different transponders on board the aircraft get turned off. And now the aircraft starts to make a turn to the left, and some military radar picks up the aircraft, starting a turn to the left, then another turn to the left, and then one going due south. And it remains on that southerly course for the entire remainder of the flight. Now, the military people didn't tell us this right away because Thailand radar didn't want to let everybody know they were watching air traffic. Um, But if we knew that earlier on, that might have helped a little bit. But the fact of the matter that the aircraft did not remain on autopilot and started making Cautious turns all the way around to the south and then flies straight ahead to some point in the South Indian Ocean, where we believe it is. Um, It tells me that somebody on board was doing this consciously.
1: So somebody was driving this plane. Yeah. you're, You're confident in that. There was some person in control of the plane.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, so and you know, just... if if it's a hypoxia situation where you say, well, both pilots were, were disabled, well, then the plane stays on autopilot and it continues going where it was going, which was Beijing.
1: Is it feasible? And again, I'm 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 just throwing this out there as this is sort of like, uh, you know, spy novel time. You know, this is something that somebody would come up with, but maybe one pilot somehow disables, maybe just you know attacks and kills the other pilot with some weapon he's brought on board. So that pilot's out. He locks the door flips off the oxygen for the rest of the of the cabin, right, and then, and then does all the rest of the stuff. Is, is that all at least possible?
3: Yeah, I'll tell you why it's all possible, and I think you should do the screenplay, and I'll do the music for it.
1: <laughs> okay, I mean, <laughs> because I, look- just, <laughs> I just still, I never thought, when this broke, Sal, I never thought we'd be here three years later. They're calling off the search. And they're like, yeah, we just never found this thing. It's yeah. a jumbo jet with almost 300 people on board.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, everybody kept asking the same question. When are we going to find it? When are we going to find it? Uh, with so little information. And, and, and it's almost in, you can only, it's almost anticipate that this was going to happen as we got into it, because things just kept changing. The information that was being given out just kept changing. And, and you go to the recent, the more recent uh, finding of that of that on, which is a part of the airplane that they think was found at Reunion Island uh, in July of uh, 2015. Uh, they pick up that, that thing, and, and, and Malaysian Airlines says, okay, it's ours. It's from that plane. The plane crashed. And then the French government says, well, wait a minute, not so fast. It's a, it's a flapper on, but we don't know where it's from because there are no serial numbers and there are no maintenance numbers on the thing. Well, why are there no serial numbers and maintenance numbers on this? Did somebody put that there, or did they wear off in the, in the ocean? And that's up to conjecture.
1: Sal Lagonia is an aviation attorney and analyst on Fox News. He's been covering MH370. Uh, since the very beginning, Lagonia is his website. Sal, if uh, they ever find this thing, come back on and tell us what happened, all right? Be happy
3: to. I hope they do.
1: All right, absolutely. Thanks, Sal. Appreciate your time. And uh, Team Buck, we will be right back. Buck Sexton, The Blaze Radio Network.
0: Listening to the Buck Sexton Show.
1: So, uh, team, everyone's getting excited about... And excited not necessarily in the way of like, yay, but just getting their level of excitement up, good or bad, about the Trump first week. Uh, Seeing some interesting reports out there that he may may decide to come out of the gates and go big with executive orders right away. I, I think you can argue... You can argue either way on that one. You can say that he wants to set the tone from day one. I, I get that. You can also say that maybe better to get get his bearings a little bit in office and let Congress kind of start chugging along and do something. But we'll see. There are some executive orders that people are saying could have very serious impact on some companies and some markets right away. Trump may withdraw the U.S. According to at least. Couple of sources I've seen from the TPP. Uh, I don't know if he's going to do that or not. Uh, Trump may do some environmental regulation deregulation. Uh, we can talk about that as it happens. Uh, I really wonder what he's going to because the first things that he does in office are going to be so heavily scrutinized by the press, and as, as we know, they're they're rooting for. They're not rooting for policy failure. They're rooting for administration destruction. There's a difference. I mean, they, they hope this whole thing uh, goes up in smoke pretty quickly. Uh, they want Trump They want Trump marched out of office. I think, honestly, they want him frog-marched out of office in handcuffs. That, that That's their ultimate goal here. There is this desire that the Democrats have. It, they want to avenge. It's not just they're upset that Hillary lost. They want to avenge Hillary's loss. They want to avenge the repudiation of the Democratic Party and its progressive agenda as the inevitable future of this country. Psych! Apparently not. Apparently is not the inevitable. We have not reached the end of American history and it is progressive. That is not where we are. Uh, I wonder if, if Trump is going to decide right away to go after some immigration issues. That's where you're going to see some of the heaviest fighting. Congress is with him on Obamacare. Congress is much more split on what to do about immigration. I mean, sorry, Republicans in Congress, much more with them on Obamacare, and they're split on what to do about immigration. There's a deeper fracture within the Republican Party on that issue. So I, I do wonder. I do have my moments of, hmm, about... How this is all going to go. I I also hope that there's some quiet days here ahead in terms of the protests. And uh, certainly there should be no destruction or violence that happens at the around the inauguration from those leftist uh, loonies that are out there. But that may be that may be asking for too much. I think there's still the very real and unfortunate possibility that all it takes is one protest to get out of hand and it will overshadow a lot of what else is going on. So we will see on that as well. I will talk a bit more about the inauguration tomorrow. We've also got a bunch of great guests lined up for Freestyle Friday. It'll be action movie quotes, and tomorrow we'll have a little special action movie quotes from movies that involve some depiction of the president. That's going to be the so you know clear and present danger, uh, Air Force One. I want I want action movie quotes from something where the president makes an appearance. All right, team. Until tomorrow. Shield time
2: the buck sexton
0: show only on the blaze radio network